Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When it comes to covering global conflicts, there's no one better than Clarissa Ward. Now the chief international correspondent for CNN, she's brought to life the stories of people living and fighting on the front lines from Syria and Iraq to Yemen and most recently Afghanistan. But her life and journey to becoming the intrepid, courageous, and highly decorated journalist may surprise you. I spoke with Clarissa this week, just days before the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Here's our conversation. Clarissa Ward, it's such a pleasure to be with you. So thank you for taking the time. I'm going to start off by asking you a question that I don't think I've I've done a whole bunch of these podcasts, hundreds and hundreds of them. And I don't think I've ever started off by saying, where the hell are you? (laughs) It's a good question. I am at my parents' house in France right now because I cannot return to my home in London, in the United Kingdom, because Afghanistan and Pakistan are both on a red list in the UK, which would mean that if I went back to the UK, I'd have to do 11 days in a hotel quarantine. So instead, I came to my parents' house and my kids came here. And so you're right, right, riding out the, uh, the the quarantine in comfort and with your family. (laughs) Good, exactly. Good. Good. It's a good plan. But you understand why I ask because we're used to seeing you in the most peculiar places, yet generally with people, armed people around you and uh, all kinds of mayhem going on. So it's actually nice. I'm looking at a portrait of you in a, a, a nice living room. And it seems it's, it's funny you should say that because I did Anderson Cooper's show the other night and before the shot, they were like, it's just so nice to see you in an elegant room. Yes. <laughs> no one's ever seen me in an elegant room before. <laughs> or in peace and quiet. I mean, that alone yeah. It, it, yeah. It d- distinguishes you. Well, listen, I want to talk about your uh, remarkable career, but uh, your story itself strikes me as remarkable and the way you came to this point in life and your childhood struck me as kind of like a cross between Downton Abbey and Nora Ephron. Uh, <laughs> That's actually perfect. You've nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> you split your time between two uh, continents. Uh, tell me about your family. Uh, your dad was kind of upper crust British. Your mom was American. How'd they meet? Tell me all of that. So my father was a Henry fellow uh, at Yale and um, after he did his undergraduate in Cambridge and he didn't know anyone in the U.S. And through, I guess, an an acquaintance of my grandmother's, he was given my mother's friends, family's information to that they would sort of look after him sometimes on weekends. And 
Um, and so then years later, my mother's friend was always talking about Rodney, Rodney, handsome Rodney. And then years <laughs> later, my mother went to London and was like, you need to hook me up with handsome Rodney. And my father came to pick her up. He's six foot six and he was driving a mini at the time. My mother said he looked like a turtle <laughs> and she's five foot five and they're absolute opposites in every way. But, um, yeah, a, a match was made and both of them have been huge influence on my life and on my career. They're incredibly supportive of my career and, um, push me hard. What was your mom's background? So my mom was, uh, she grew up in sort of between New Jersey and also California for a bit. And then she left the U.S. really when she was 22 and spent most of her life then um, in Europe. She's one of these Americans who like talks a bit like Madonna and thinks they have a British <laughs> accent. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> she's some you know she's a force of nature my mother she's very brilliant and intense amounts of energy and she has always been very ambitious for me in ways that are you know are sometimes a little intense but on the other hand I probably wouldn't be where I am today. I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without her. And I like to joke that those kids and toddlers and tiaras got nothing on me, you know. <laughs> Your parents split up when you were pretty young. Uh, and you grew up the first years in your life in New York City. Your mom's an interior designer. Uh, you wrote that you you spent a lot of time in townhouses that she bought to redesign mm. to 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 sell. And it sounded like you spent you're an only child. You spent a lot of time alone. Yeah, it sounded like a lonely kind of life. It was. It was lonely. I mean, my mother was amazing in terms of she was always organizing activities and, you know, ice skating and ballet and all that kind of stuff. But she was very busy and very much workaholic. And so was my dad. And so there, there were there were like these acres of, of, of solitude and loneliness. But at the time, I don't, it didn't make me sad. It just meant that I had to like, I think that's when I really developed this passion for storytelling. Um, and I had a very close relationship with my father's mother, my British grandmother, Granny Griggs, um, yes. who, you know, was you didn't make like, that up, right? That's really true. That's, that's really name. true. <laughs> that's yes, okay. really true. That's what she was called to us, Granny Griggs. And she really nurtured and encouraged this sort of storytelling and lots of travel because she had she was married to my grandfather and they were in the colonial service and they lived in Singapore and they lived in Somalia. And so it was a different generation, a different era. And she used to thrill me with her stories and she was a frustrated, failed novelist herself. And I think all of that had a big impact on me, definitely. You moved back to London. Your parents split. Your father went off to Hong Kong, I guess, and mm -hmm. you moved back to London. What Was that a jarring transition? Yeah, it was a bit because by then I was sort of American. And, and so I came to London and all the girls were like very snotty about the way I spoke. And so then I started trying very hard to be like very, very English. <laughs> um, and you can see my accent to this day, it's like being bilingual, but it's totally useless, <laughs> except occasionally as a party trick. So I, yeah, I didn't feel that I fit in as well in, in the UK. I found them like a bit stiff and because my mother was a bit eccentric and was all like, let's order sushi and hang out and, you know, talk, watch Thelma and Louise. And I'm like, ah, I'm nine. We're not <laughs> supposed to be doing this. Like, so I never, I didn't feel that I really fit in. And then I got sent to this like awful boarding school, um, which again, you know, I think that definitely taught me though survivalism in the sense of being able to like fit in anywhere, 
make it work anywhere, be self-sufficient anywhere. Well, why did you get sent to boarding school? Well, I mean, I, I've, you know, I think my mother felt it was the best education and a very sort of traditional British path to take. Um, and I, I think my father probably agreed. My mother and father were always like very focused on education. I had a lot of freedom always in life, except on academics. Um, that was always like very, very strict. So I think also they just were both workaholics. So like having a 10 year old rattling around the house was kind of, you know, it didn't make sense anymore. It wouldn't, it was easier to have me in boarding school. Did it feel like you were being sent away? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. There's not really any getting around that. I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, I'm actually a fan of boarding school for kids who are a bit older. I went at 10. I think that's too young. Personally, my father went at seven and he saw his parents once a year. So it's all relative. I think the Brits have, have are slowly evolving in terms of like um, what constitutes emotional harm to children. Uh, but from my experience, I will say that like I, I take a lot of positive things from it. We weren't allowed to use the phone at my first boarding school. So we had we had to learn to write letters. And my father was a great correspondent. And so also was my granny. So we, I used to write a lot of letters and read a lot of letters and read a lot of books. We weren't really allowed TV and it was incredibly strict. And I, I think you, again, you come up with all these sort of creative ways as a young child to, to make it fun and, and make it bearable. And I was always interested in being naughty as well from a very young age, which kept me busy, <laughs> kept my teachers busy. You staged an orange revolution of your own on the <laughs> night, night before you graduated uh, from your first first boarding school. What, what, yeah. what was that all about? Oh, I just was so desperate. We weren't allowed to wash our own hair in this school, which is the most ludicrous thing. There was a woman who would come in from town once a week and wash it for us, which, I, you know, when you're 12, you're like, lady, I know how to wash my hair, okay? <laughs> So my final act of rebellion was to dye my hair in the shower on my last night. And as a result, I wasn't allowed to go to the graduation and everything. It was bright orange. And it was very funny, though, because when my mother picked me up, she did not care at all that I couldn't go to the graduation, that I was, you know, in deep trouble. None of that bothered her. The only thing that made her crazy was why would you ever choose orange? It's a terrible <laughs> color for you. You look jaundiced. <laughs> it's funny the things that would upset her <laughs> you went to another boarding school but you said earlier that you think boarding school when you're older is better but you actually left boarding school and came home to go to public school that's because there that? were no boys david there were no boys so i'm a fan of boarding school for older kids if there is Co-ed, uh, huh? you know, co-ed. I mean, like, I think it's unnatural at a certain point. You're 17 years old and like in the British countryside with a bunch of girls. It's it's so, yeah, that's why I went to London. And also my parents had this sort of they were like, you can only leave if you go to a school that's academically better, which actually didn't really give you that many options. But there was one school in London that's actually a boys school that only took girls for the last two years. So they're like, if you get into Westminster, then you can go. And so that's what happened. You, you went. And then you went to Yale. What caused you to come back to the States? I think I always knew I wanted to come back to the U.S. because I never really left that 
or rather that sentiment never really left me of not quite fitting in in the UK. And there's so much in the UK, like you can't talk about being ambitious or you can't be overly earnest. Everything's about banta and the art of being charming, which is entertaining and beguiling even, but it lacks depth. And for someone who was always attracted to intensity, I found that um, exhausting and I was tired of being told uh, a little bit condescendingly that I was um, too ambitious or whatever, you know, because ambition is very much looked down upon <laughs> in the UK in certain circles. <laughs> you can have it, but you just can't show it. Is that? The yeah. And, and and also, you know, the problem with the, if I'd say it in the UK, you end up just like being friends with all your friends who you already know when you go to university, whereas like going to the US constituted this huge new universe opening up to me of like understanding, uh, you know, a, a much deeper and broader swath of America and getting to study different subjects as well. In the UK, you pick one subject when you're 18 and that's all you do for the next three years. So it was much more appealing to me on so many levels and it was the best decision I ever made. You uh, described your, uh, your time at Yale, and you said, I dyed my hair pink and pierced my tongue and belly button. I smoked copious amounts of pot and devoured <laughs> Russian novels and French New Wave cinema. I acted in, in, in student, uh-oh, it's cut off, but I assumed... Uh, Phelps. Uh, yeah, and pub uh, published a magazine with my friends that featured a satirical social column written by my granny Griggs under the gnome de plume Lady Lavinia Lunch. Um, <laughs> it sounds like fun. It sounds like fun, but it doesn't sound like at that moment that you were headed for becoming a war correspondent and chief global correspondent for, for CNN. Definitely not. Definitely not. Nothing could have been further from my orbit. I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And so I look back and I'm like, okay, this is an upbringing that, that taught me to be curious, that taught me to be self-reliant, that taught me about storytelling, that allowed me the privilege of traveling a lot in the world um, and of being exposed to different languages, which I, I had always loved from a young age. So in that sense, you can sort of see how things could end up where they were. But no, at, at, up until 9-11, there was absolutely no glimmer on the horizon that Clarissa yeah. was going to become uh, an international correspondent. I'm going to leave aside whether your mother thought pink was a more becoming color. For no, she hair. didn't speak to me for four months. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you, you've been very clear that, you know, 9-11 was obviously a watershed for the U.S., a watershed for the world. We're going to mark that occasion in just a few uh, days, but it really was an epiphany for you, as you describe mm. it. Tell me about that day, uh, and and why it it hit you so so hard that it actually jarred your sensibilities about what you wanted to do with your life. Yeah, I I woke up. My friend told me to come over to his apartment. I, we didn't have a television in our apartment, and so I ran over to his apartment. There were a bunch of uh, other students sitting on the floor watching the TV as, as things were unfolding. And basically all I remember for, for the rest of that day was being glued to the television. I remember feeling obviously as everyone did like profound shock, but I also felt shame that all of this had been brewing beneath the surface and I had been largely disengaged from it. Um, and that seemed very odd to me because I was like, I am 
from a world where I should know more about this, right? Like I, I, I'm privileged enough to have a great education and I should be more in touch with what's happening in the world around us. And when did people start to hate America so much? And how did this happen? And where did this happen? And why did this happen? And how do they see us? And how do we see them? And how do we make sense of, I just had a thousand different questions in my mind. And I also felt this strong sense of compulsion that there was a breakdown in translation between different worlds and that that had contributed to what had happened. And I, I think, you know, some people were called to serve. And for me, I felt called to act as a translator and to try to better understand how this had happened and why this had happened. And in the process of trying to understand that, maybe also to bring something of America to that world as well, that clearly um, was only seeing America through one lens, let's say. So, I mean, I was 22, right? There's a lot of hubris and a lot of idealism. And I've, I think that the, the goals are maybe slightly less lofty now. Although I will say that the primary that sense in my gut of having a vocation or a calling that is to somehow create connections through shared human experience with people or places or cultures or conflict that seem impossibly remote to many Americans, that is still to this day what excites me about this work and what motivates me. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh you know, that day, I think, called a lot of young Americans to think about something larger than themselves. Mm. Perhaps the day before, they weren't. Uh, the day after, uh, they were. And that that's, it, it seems very much like you're one of them uh, who started, you know, it opened the aperture in a way that was really, uh, uh, really striking. Um, you, you, how did you hook up? You, you got an internship at CNN. Mm-hmm. Uh in Moscow. Um, tell me how that happened. I was super random. There were, well, there were two sort of prongs to it. One was that my father knew Mike Chinoy, who was a CNN correspondent for years in Hong Kong. Um, and then the second was that my mother's dentist was Jill Doherty's <laughs> dentist, who the, was, was covering Moscow, Moscow and, bureau chief. Yeah. So I was like, all right, between the two of you, we need to lock this thing down. Um, because immediately to me, it was like, okay, now I know what I'm going to do with my life. How do we do it? Where do we start? Um, and so I went to Moscow and it was a strange time to be in Moscow because the story post nine 11 was very much about Afghanistan and, um, also the Arab world and the sort of like, you know, drum beat to war in Iraq was starting off and, um, Russia wasn't the obvious place to go, but I had already studied Russian literature and I spoke a bit of Russian and I just was so desperate to go somewhere quickly and and learn as much as I could. And so that's where I ended up. And, and then I ended up moving to Russia again later on. So it was it was very worthwhile, although at the time I felt sort of like, oh, I, I'm I'm not at the center of the story. But, you know. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. 
It was an interesting time, though, because for a couple of reasons. One was there were Muslim extremist mm-hmm. uh, attacks in Russia at the time that you ended up covering. Yeah. It also was the uh, sort of the beginning of Putinism. He was he had just basically consolidated, begun to consolidate power. Um, wh- what do you what do you remember of that? And when you look at Putin then and Putin now, how has that story evolved? Yeah, it's extraordinary, the evolution of that story, because at that time, I think he was underestimated by a lot of people. Definitely. He was seen as sort of not unthreatening. Don't get me wrong. I mean, people were talking about what was going on and and, and it had begun. Um, But he was sort of, he was in a seen in a positive light by many because he had been very quick to respond after 9-11 and sort of extend his hand out to the U.S. and and say that, you know, Russia showed solidarity in that moment with America, which earned him a lot of kudos, I think, with um, President Bush. But meanwhile, the cult of personality was starting to bubble away. I remember while I was living there that time that this a uh, song came out, this pop song that went like Takova kak Putin, polnova seal, Takova kak Putin, nipil, which means like someone like Putin who's really strong, someone like Putin who doesn't drink. And it was like, wait, what is this? There's like this pop song about your president, but it's sort of I, I, I had never really experienced that before. Um, I can't really imagine a pop song about uh, President Bush or President Clinton. So <laughs> that was different. And, you, and I, then I start, you know, you started to realize that, like, he was starting to cultivate this grand image and people were willing to go along for the ride because they were starting to get rich and they had been poor for a really long time. And, and we're talking like grinding poverty. And so I do think there was something of a Faustian bargain where people were willing to slowly give up little bits of their civil liberties or their privacy or, you know, whatever it might be in exchange for the possibility that, you know, in five years time, they might be able to go on vacation to Egypt for the summer, which was some, or Turkey or Thailand mm-hmm. or which was something that had never been possible for most Russians for for many, many decades. So, yeah, it was a very different time. Flash forward 15 years or so, maybe a little bit more, and you covered the uh, poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the Mm. uh, opposition leader. Another crazy Clarissa Clarissa Ward thing uh, going up to the door, the guy who was a mastermind of the whole thing or a guy who was involved mm-hmm. in, in, in confronting him, but we'll, we'll get to crazy stuff later. Um, but, you know, uh, Navalny himself, it was sort of interesting because it's not just, I mean, I, I had this discussion with Ben Rhodes and mm-hmm. it was, it was uh, he had had a conversation with Navalny shortly before he was uh, poisoned. And Navalny, basically, he kind of bought the nationalist part of Putin's message. Uh, he was... And he said, we, we can we can unite around nationalist causes, the seizing of Crimea or whatever, but we don't have to have corruption. Mm. And it struck me that that's what, I mean, Putin, Putin's great strength 
in, in addition to creating this cult of personality was that for a country that had been sort of had suffered these indignities. Oh, a hundred percent. He he was putting Russia back on the map and reinstating the former glory and the geopolitical heft that had that the Soviet Union had enjoyed for for so many years. And because I think there had been humiliation in the 90s, not just in terms of the grinding poverty, but also in terms of perceived NATO encroachment and this idea that Russia was just seen as being a sort of third rate power and like a basket case that needed help to get back on its feet. And it's funny you mention the annexation of Crimea because I often have to explain this to people in the West. The vast majority of Russians thought that that was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. They were delighted by it. They don't. They didn't care about the contravention of international law or whether it was part of, no. That was about reinstating Russia's uh, importance on the world stage and about saying, we have had just enough of being pushed around by you. Thank you very much. This is how Russian people felt about it. And, you know, you have to deal with us and respect us because we are able, even though we don't have the wealth and we don't have the economic growth, we know how to fight in different ways. I mean, this is sort of the beginning of like hybrid warfare as well, right? Um, you went from there, uh, talking about uh, potentates, you went from there to Roger Ailes's uh, Fox News <sighs> as a, uh, an overnight desk assistant. Essentially, you were running the desk when everybody else was sleeping, and you parlayed that into an assignment in Baghdad. Mm. And was that always your goal? Was it was your goal to get to the war front? A hundred percent. I always knew that I wanted to cover conflict, and I I took the job at Fox because they told me I was going to have to wait a month or two for a CNN opening, and I was not interested. And I was in a real hurry at twenty three, so. I took the job at Fox with the absolute certainty that this was a stepping stone to get to where I wanted to be, which was in the field. And I drove everybody nuts, probably, by constantly badgering them to let me go to Baghdad. And I would finish work at nine in the morning and go and do Arabic lessons. And eventually, uh, in 2005, two years into the war, and it was so dangerous and People were starting to lose interest in the story because it was relentlessly depressing and it was harder to get staff um, staffers to go to Baghdad. And so I was like, all right, send me. And eventually they did. And did you know what you were getting into? No, no. I don't think anyone knows what they're getting into the first time you go to a war zone. You can do all the courses to prepare for it. You can read as many books and do as much research and watch as many movies, nothing prepares you for the first time that you're in an active conflict zone. And I think in the beginning, you're sort of pinching yourself and you feel like you're in a movie or something and you have profound culture shock and everything is sort of thrilling and exciting and new and just like stimulus overload. And then usually you'll have, well, not usually, maybe for me, uh, I had a very close call after I think my, halfway through my second trip to Iraq, where the hotel we were in was attacked 
in a triple suicide car bombing. And we were all very nearly killed. And I think that's the moment where I kind of woke up a little bit like, okay, this isn't a game. This isn't a movie. This is real. Um, and yeah, that was a really, it was a pivotal moment for me because I understood both how serious it really was, but I also understood that I was completely hooked. Why were you hooked? I, I, I read somewhere that your husband, maybe before you were married and long before you met, said something like uh, being a war correspondent is, is a function of egomania or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that must have been a winning line with you. That was, that was, I was like, well, that's interesting. I don't get that one <laughs> that often. <laughs> no, why was I hooked? I was hooked because life seems more important and the world, the things feel more vivid and profound and meaningful when you're in those kind of high stakes moments. Um, and I think when, when, when you start out, that's probably what drew me to it or what hooked me. I wasn't hooked to the danger at all because that is scary and, and I'm not particularly good in a sort of active kinetic situation. But I was drawn to the intensity and the profundity of, 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 the, of, of life in, in these conflict zones, I think, yeah. You uh, you say you're not particularly good in these kinetic situations, uh, but you've been in a hell of a lot of them, and you you've survived them. Mm. Um, and it it does. I mean, I know you've answered this question uh, a million times, but don't you get terrified? Don't you get because people get terrified for you? Mm. You know, people watch you, and you know, Clarissa, they like you. They don't want you to get. <laughs> They don't want to see you get killed. They don't yeah. want to see you captured. Yeah. How do you operate in that kind of environment and do your job? So, I mean, there's several things I would say. Firstly, of course I get terrified. And like, you're really stupid if you don't get terrified because fear serves a, a very important function in terms of your ability to survive in dangerous places. So if you're not scared, you're stupid and you don't, you should, don't have any business being there in the first place. I would say... For me, I feel much more comfortable with threats that come from, you know, for example, embedding with the Taliban or interviewing jihadists. If I can build a relationship and understand a little bit about the way someone's mind works and form some kind of a semblance of a framework for understanding each other or like not trust. Cause I think that's overstating it, but like mutually understood rationale, let's say for conduct, then I am willing to take a lot of risks in that situation because I feel like if there is a code of conduct, then I, and I have, then I'm usually have pretty good instincts about people. And I work with people who know the culture or the places or the people really well. So that's a kind of danger that I'm always more willing to enter into. I definitely struggle in a situation where there's active shelling going on all the time. I obviously spent years covering the Syrian civil war very closely. 
And that really was very difficult for me because that was a level of fear that was almost crippling. Like it was hard for me to leave the safe house that we were staying in to go out and shoot for the day. I remember my first 60 minutes assignment and I was like, I do not want to leave this house. I really don't. But I really, really, really want this opportunity to do a 60 minutes piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I have no comparable experience other than that I was a reporter and the only thing when I was thrown into situations that were uncomfortable, mm. maybe maybe a little scary, was that I was more scared about coming back and saying I didn't get a story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but and you, you know, but you're so you worked at ABC, you worked as a correspondent for ABC, Russia, Beijing. You worked uh and then you went to CBS and that's when you were doing pieces for sixty minutes. You slipped into Syria at one point and shot your own piece. And, you know, some of the experiences there were hair but I want to ask you particularly, you, you lost a couple of friends in yeah. Syria. One of them disappeared. And then Jim Foley mm. was someone who you knew well, mm. uh, a correspondent who was captured and executed on, on camera, beheaded mm. by ISIS. That must have been incredibly devastating and scary. Mm. It w- It was... I mean, it was without a doubt the worst period in my life, um, the toughest to get my head around. Uh, there was so much rage and a lot of fear and a sense, honestly, that things had slipped out of con- my control a little bit because when I embarked on this journey as a senior in college, it never occurred to me that I was going to have people I cared about who would be executed, people I cared about who were disappeared by the regime, people I cared about who were bombed or shelled or, you know, and and suddenly in Syria, every worst case scenario just started coming at the same time. And Austin Tice, my friend who, yes. who disappeared. And then the reason I became friends with Jim Foley is that we were both working hard because we knew Austin to try to find Austin. And then Jim was executed. And then my friend Pete Cassig, uh was also executed. But, and, you know, it was just the worst. It was so, so, so dark, just relentlessly dark. And my previous experiences of grief had been that there was this sort of catharsis in grief and you kind of work through it and and then it passes and the thing about this type of grief was it was so dark there was no catharsis in it and it was so difficult to navigate um uh, yeah it was really really a really tough time the thing that you didn't say, i can only imagine what it was like to lose these people who were so close and in this uh environment. Did you also say, hey, that 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 very well could have been me? I think I I didn't say that so much because, well, look, there's always when you do this job, an element of there but for the grace of God go I, right? Because you can take the craziest risk ever and 
then somebody else who takes no risk gets killed in a in a car accident, which, by the way, is the most common way that foreign right. correspondents and you actually lost, do You lost stuff. a good friend, Bob Simon, who was himself Bob a Simon. I extraordinary, mean, extraordinary correspondent who ended up dying in a traffic accident in Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. He's he's the he's the personification of that. So I, I but at the same time, I, I was I was always pretty cautious. I know that sounds ridiculous because you're like, oh, you're just talking about going to Aleppo in Syria. But still, I was very cautious within the context of covering that conflict. And and CBS was also like they were strict with us. We were only allowed to go in for very specific periods of time. Every minute of every day had to be accounted for. We had to take security with us. We had to check in all the time. And, uh, you know, and CNN is the same way as well. And I'm not saying that entirely mitigates risks or means that bad things don't happen, but it's easier when you're a freelancer. And, and I think that what happened in Syria really highlighted the fact that the industry needs to do better by our, our freelance brothers and sisters was you realize that no one was telling the freelancers don't stay longer than a week. Don't go here. Don't go there. I won't print this if you don't get it together or, you know, you have to yes. come out now. You no. people were actually saying, I don't want to be responsible for you, but if you get really good stuff, I'll buy it. And so you're encouraging that. You see um, these people who have been in combat at their, their uniforms festooned with medals and recognitions. If journalists wore uniforms, yours would be festooned with uh, all kinds of recognition. You've been honored for a lot of uh, so many things uh, that you've done in so many different ways. One of those honors was for your reporting in Syria. It was bestowed on you by Christiana Mampour, who is mm. a, a great conflict a correspondent in her own right, fearless and and uh, uh, a tremendous role model for journalists. Mm. Uh, but she she gave you some advice uh, yeah. after you won uh, your uh, one of these awards that she presented for uh, uh, for your coverage in Syria. What was that advice? It was really great advice, and it's advice that I now pass on to other people. She basically was like, "If you want to keep doing this job." got to have a normal life as well. Uh, you can't be one of those people who comes home to like, you know, a dead plant and like, you know, a string of broken relationships and friends who don't talk to you anymore because you're always on the road and overpay, you know, overdue bills and all that. You have to have a nurturing normal life with friends and you, whether it's that you want to go out to dinner and have a glass of wine or go to the theater or whatever it is that does it for you, go dancing, just have that normalcy in, in your life and, and make, make a point of dedicating time and energy and fostering that because it is the natural instinct when you get back from a very intense trip or you're going through something really tough to kind of feel numb, feel detached and feel like the only way you can really deal with it is to go back. And the only people you want to talk to are the people you were there with. And that's very natural, but it's definitely not healthy in the long run. And the reality is you can only keep doing this job if you fill the tank keep replenishing the tank when you're at home and then you can go out and, and give the job 110%. But you can't be giving 110% constantly without filling the tank. It doesn't work. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
And now, back to the show. You did get married probably shortly, not not that long after that conversation. Not suggesting mm. that Chris, Christian <laughs> push you push you into getting married. You have a couple of, of of children now, and I know that you've bristled when you've gotten this question before yeah. because it's a question that should properly properly be asked of any young parent, man or woman. Yeah. But has the fact that you have two children, three and one, has that changed your feelings about this? I'm, I'm, I was sort of. I just try to process myself what that is mm. like to Yeah, it does look it changes everything, right? Having kids changes everything. Um it doesn't change who you are on a fundamental level or it doesn't have to change what you do, but of course it changes the way you approach risk. It changes the way I approach how long I can be away. Um, previously I'd go away for six weeks, like no problem. Now there's no way I can't be away from my kids for longer than, you know, ideally two weeks, maybe in a pinch three weeks, but that's, that's it. And that's hard. Um, and there are assignments that I would definitely think twice about taking in terms of risk or certain things, even if I would take the assignment that I wouldn't do that I would have done before because of risk. Um, and also just the whole nature of being on assignment now, and I'll be on a satellite phone organizing a doctor's appointment for my kid or a play date or, you you know, my life is secondary to my kids' lives. And, and so, yes, that takes some readjusting and and rejuggling. And I'm not going to say it's all perfect and works super well. And the definitely doctor's appointments have been missed and play dates and all the rest of it. And you do the best that you can. And ultimately, I think that for, for me, I always felt because my upbringing was a little unusual that as long as children have huge amounts of love and support and stability in their life, I think um, the rest is like, yeah, the rest will kind of work itself out. So hopefully they'll they'll understand why i made some of the choices that that i did and went to the places i did that's part of why i wrote that book was for them to understand it all better but of course it changes everything it does you talked about this dark period after you lost the all these friends in in syria you know watching you do your stuff there has to be a ton of 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 ptsd uh, mm. for any you've seen a lot you just in in, in afghanistan you watched crowds, you know, children trampled in crowds and mothers handing babies over a barbed wire fence to try and get them out of the country. You've, you know, you've seen death and suffering and um, do do you get, do you get help for that? Do you come back? Do you, do you have? Yeah, you have, I think, uh, yes, I, I do. I think you have to have a therapist if you do this job. I mean, I'm a big fan of therapy no matter what job you do, but this job, it's really essential to have someone who you check in with because the way the trauma or just even deep, intense stress manifests is not always in this neat chronological order, right? Where I see the child being trampled and then I go home and I cry a lot because I saw a kid being trampled and then I feel sad about it and then I've dealt with it, right? It's more like you see something awful, you leave, you feel nothing, you feel detached, you don't sleep well, you're irritable, you don't want to talk to people that you normally really love to be around. 
Um, everything feels gray and flat and kind of numb. And yeah, and that's and like you're losing weight, but you're still eating. So you're obviously not happy, you know, like, and, and then you and then you realize, oh, wait, this is about that. <laughs> like, because it's not like, oh, I'm crying because I saw the sad thing. It's like, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't feel like myself anymore. Yeah. Or at some of my worst moments, it's like, I don't really want to be myself anymore, which is not the same as I don't want to live anymore. It's more right. just like, I don't want to live this life right, right. now. Um, so because of that, of course, I think it's vitally important that, and I wish it wasn't still a taboo in our industry. I wish people felt more comfortable talking about it, not talking about like, the details of their own personal grief or whatever it might be, but just it should, in my mind, go without saying that anyone who does this job should be seeking therapy once in a while. You know, it's not just in this industry, but yeah, you know, we we have so st we stigmatize mental health in ways that are, are really destructive, and so I mean, this is this is a bigger problem than just for. Uh, people in the industry or for people who cover conflicts, it, it is a, you know, we need to have a different attitude mm. about that. You, when you went off to Afghanistan on this last trip, you packed a book. You thought you'd be there for two weeks. <laughs> I know. You didn't I think. Know. Yeah. So first of all, why do you think everyone was so wrong mm -hmm. about, about how quickly this would unravel? Why did you feel like it would be uh, a more, you know, a different kind of story? than the one that you ended up covering. Well, I mean, I think this is sort of not stating anything new, but I just don't think anyone quite understood how quickly the Afghan army would basically give up. And I know that that really hit home for me when we were in Kandahar and we were on the front lines in this wedding hall that the commandos had taken over and it was their frontline position and they were taking fire from... Uh, snipers from the Taliban during the day and at night there would be more significant fighting. But it was, as far as front lines I've been to, it was a pretty relaxed front line and they had a very fortified position. And then like four or five days after I left, they lost that position in Kandahar felt. And I wrote immediately a WhatsApp to the um, Afghan soldiers who I had been with. And I said, where are you? Are you okay? And they were like, oh yeah, we left. We left. And I was like, what <laughs> What do you mean we left? Like, that's not normally how it works. Normally, you fight and you fight and you fight and you fight. And unfortunately, a lot of people probably die. And then, yes, maybe one side wins. But it's pretty rare that you just leave. And then again, I was driving to Ghazni province, drove past a checkpoint with a small base Taliban snipers again firing on the base. I just saw a bunch of Afghan soldiers running down out of the base, taking off their uniforms, hailing a civilian car, and just getting in the car and driving off. And so at that moment, you realize, okay, this is not what was expected. Maybe it was by some, but I think largely we can agree it was not what was expected. Uh, and then I think the other thing that was maybe not anticipated was that the Taliban were savvier than people had given them credit for in terms of how they went into a lot of these cities. And they basically started having conversations with different 
um, different groups within the different cities in advance. And they would just say, listen, we're going to come in. We're not going to fire a shot. We'll have a blanket amnesty if you don't fire a shot at us. And to a lot of people, that was more appealing than fighting. And do you believe that there will be a blanket amnesty? I think it's really difficult to take the Taliban at face value on anything they've said at the moment um, because they've made a lot of pretty big promises and we already see their, you know, what some would say are their true colors coming through. I think the blanket amnesty would be also very difficult to enforce on a sort of local yeah, level yeah. when you're talking about rank and file. And this yeah, is the not, thing that you, you've you always had this with the Taliban. you got the guys in Doha at the five-star right. hotel talking about women's rights, and then you've got the people on the ground. and Not Gazi a lot of command province. and control there, yeah. I mean, they do actually have, in terms of, you know, the various different militant groups and insurgencies that I've covered, they actually have a pretty impressive level of command and control, I would say, but within reason and with absolute limitations. And the problem is that the second the rank and file start to get just a little bit disenchanted with the leadership, which could happen very easily, because all this talk about progressiveness and diplomacy and that is not of interest to the rank and file. And so it could easily happen. I think that they will start to get more disillusioned and, and that things could get trickier for the Taliban. Well, you saw the installation of the interim government. There was nothing about that was there that would suggest to you a great deal of moderation. No. No, no, it was absolutely, you know, 90s redux, a lot of the same characters who were involved in the government back then, no women, no Hazaras, the ethnic minority that has faced incredible uh, persecution for years at the hands of the Haqqani network and, and others. Um, so no, there was absolutely no indication from the leadership that's been announced so far that there is sincerity behind the platitudes about inclusiveness. Including uh, their, they've been quashing demonstrations, many of them uh, led by women in increasingly aggressive ways. So uh, that's discouraging. You report the story that you see. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's been a lot of discussion back here about whose responsibility this was. You know, and you'd see defenders. I was in a room in 2009 when we had, I think, nine meetings on Afghanistan at which President Obama, uh, after which President Obama sent more troops. And um, some of the same people who were in that room were critical of the suggestion that, or not the suggestion, but the decision to withdraw and said, you know, if the reason the troops, the Afghan troops fled was because they, the U.S. support had disappeared and without the mm. US support they who who is responsible for and who is responsible for the way it ended i mean wh what sure it, or like, what i should say what is responsible yeah i mean listen i think in the final analysis it'll turn out that like everybody's responsible on some level and to some extent what i find troubling about the way the narrative has been framed politically is that if you voice concern about the way it was carried out or you voice sadness for the Afghan people, 
then you're immediately branded as a warmonger, right? Who wants to continue, uh, you know, an endless war in Afghanistan. And what is not allowed, it seems to me, in the current political debate is what I have found to be true in so many different wars I've covered, which is it's possible to feel many different things at the same time. It's possible to feel that it was time for this war to come to an end, and it's still possible to feel, you know, rivers of pain about leaving people in Afghanistan, about leaving women. It's possible to feel guilt. It's possible to feel um, unthrilled by America's comportment over the past two decades as a whole. It's possible to feel resentment. It's possible to feel uh dizzying exhilaration as well at the freedom of being ended. It's possible to feel all these things at the same time. And and intellectually, it's possible to grasp all these things at the same time. And I just, it strikes me that <laughs> the the construct of the of the sort of political debate is so binary. Well, let, let me give you a little insight that you know into my, <laughs> into my world, my friend. There's not a lot of world. Uh, there's not a lot of room for nuance, and there's an impulse to weaponize every issue mm. uh, for advantage. So, uh, which nuance doesn't permit. So, mm. look, I mean, my view of it is that it was time to go. I wasn't mm. really in favor of, uh, uh, but I had no standing. Uh, at the time, uh, you know, for for the surge in the first place, I, I, I thought Biden was right about that. Mm. But but um, you can you can feel that and also feel like the end was uh, a little shambolic and mm. uh, could have been could have been handled differently. As complex as it was, and I've mm. you, I've heard you talk about the other side of the argument on why there were difficulties and. But mm-hmm. um, but let let me ask you in the in the just the time we have left uh, two things. One is you you talked about uh, the disappointment of the uh, the heartbreaking disappointment of the Afghan people uh, who feel uh, abandoned. And you know you, you previously you talked about Syrians who felt uh, abandoned. Uh, mm. And it does raise this question about what what is the appropriate role for the United States as mm. a sort of self styled trustee of democracy and freedom um mm. and what are the limits of it and what should and shouldn't be in that toolkit mm. i think that you know these are some of the toughest questions i said that, for last yeah that, that any president <laughs> is going to to be faced yeah. with and there are no easy answers and everyone understands that i just think that the one thing i would say that i've noticed again in syria um in afghanistan it's slightly different but there's a sometimes a a a misunderstanding that people in the u.s have which is that if the u.s isn't involved then there are no consequences if we leave afghanistan then we're done with it halas wow thank you if we don't go into syria we don't get involved then we're not involved with that and the reality is the the pain of being the world's greatest superpower is there's always consequences for action there are consequences for inaction there are consequences that doesn't mean that action is always the right course and that inaction is not it just means that it's a mistake to think that just because you leave a war or don't enter a war that you're off the hook somehow you're not 
necessarily. I would argue in the exact same way, it's a mistake to keep staying in a war that you no longer have any concept or understanding of why you're even there anymore, just to keep to keep going along. But I do think that sometimes that is is something that's lost, if not on America's leadership, I definitely think it's lost on the American people somewhat who want to believe that, oh, if we're just not paying attention and not involved with that, then it's not our problem. But look how this whole war started and how 9-11 started. The world is not letting America completely disengage and revert to a more introverted posture. Yeah. And and President Biden has said that, you know, he, he doesn't want he wants to see America taking a, a real global leadership role once again, which is not to say that pulling out of Afghanistan was the was the wrong thing to do in any way, shape or form. And as a journalist, it's not my place to say even if it was. But my point is that there may well be consequences for staying and there may well be consequences for leaving. And, and we should be able to have the conversation about both. You live in Europe. They're our closest allies. Do you think damage has been done? Through Afghanistan? Yes. I think that there's a, a sense of real disappointment in terms of how the levels of communication throughout this whole withdrawal and how much warning uh, European partners were given, NATO allies were given. I think there's also a sense that while the Europeans also wanted to get out of Afghanistan and wanted to end the war, nobody feels delighted about the way it ended. Nobody can look at images of women throwing their babies over razor wire and being like, that was fabulous, right? I mean, it is a moment to 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 stop and 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 think and ask ask yourself questions about how it could have been done differently. Could it have been do done differently? Maybe it couldn't have. Um, but then maybe it needed to be made clearer from the beginning to the public that there there's going to be no pretty way to do this. It's going to look ugly, and we're just going to do the best we can. So I think the Europeans have used to dealing with uh, much more intense. Uh, sort of areas of disagreement or frustration with the U.S. And I think they see President Biden as being a really effective leader and and, and an ally. So, but yeah, I, I think- So we'll get passes. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, look, the job of all these, you know, any European leader you talk to will tell you the same thing, especially the British prime minister, no matter who it is. It's our job to get along with whoever is the president of the United States, and, and, and we will. As we go out, and as I mentioned earlier, really, your, your career has been demarcated by these 20 years from 9-11 mm. until today. I mean, when we mark the anniversary in a few days of 9-11, it's also the anniversary of the beginning of what has been a mission for you for 20 years as a storyteller mm. and a correspondent. Tell me how these 20 years have changed you and how do you think that it's changed America in the world? I think that you can't have gone through this 20 years and covering these wars as closely as I have without asking yourself at this moment, what was it all for? What did we achieve? What did we change? What was the legacy that was left? And... You know, I think sometimes when you think you ask yourself those questions and you reflect on that, it it is a little frustrating and 
a little scary to see, you know, the cycle of history continues to go round and round. And obviously we do learn and, but we also, we also don't change as much as, 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 as we think we will from any given situation. Yeah, I think the other thing we have to gauge is the cost of, as you point out, public uh, support for American leadership in the world mm. uh, as a result of 20 years of, of uh, in, intense uh, investment of human life, of mm. treasure uh, in a, um, you know, in, in, in two ventures, two wars, uh, the results of which are very murky. Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, that's something that's going to have to be uh, assessed. And what about you personally? How have these experiences changed and molded you? And is there some sort of finality? Uh, is there any sort of line of demarcation with the end of the war in Afghanistan to you? Or does the story just continue? I think there is a line of demarcation. I think it is the end of the U.S. really trying to impose its will or its ideals onto the world in using the sort of mechanisms of traditional warfare. I, I, I feel like that chapter seems to be closed, and I think many people would argue that that's, that's, that's probably a good thing too. Um, I also feel in terms of what having come full circle this 20 years, I, I started out so desperate to understand how these things could happen and, and what goes in to the mind of, of someone who engages in these kinds of attacks and, and, and not really understanding a lot of that. And I feel that now I have a much better understanding of it. And, and, and it is frustrating on one level because you want to be able to come out and be like, here is my big takeaway and have it be something that's easy for people to synthesize. But my only big takeaway is that people are people. Wherever you are, whatever their religious creed, color, whatever dominates, motivates, people are people. and. That, to me, is really what keeps me doing this job to this day. I'm endlessly fascinated by people and curious about them and wanting to understand them better and wanting people to be able to access other worlds um, more easily, even worlds that seem a thousand miles away. Well, you call yourself a translator. Nobody does it better, in my view, uh, than you. You're, you're a remarkable uh journalist and, and storyteller and very uh, courageous as well. That fictional uniform deserves to be festooned with all the honors that you've received. And oh, thank uh, you. it's it's great to uh, talk to you here. It's great to be on the screen with you from, from time to time, an honor to be on the screen with you. And I look forward to what you, uh, what you do next and the next story you cover. Thank you so much. That's really so kind of you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, 
Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.